we are Centrepoint Church. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Odeon Cinema in Guildford, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Well, hello. Good morning, good morning. Just uh, encourage you to come and grab your seats and uh, finish up those conversations. Welcome to Centrepoint Church. Can I just add my uh, welcome to Catherine's um, to you and it's so great to be together. My name is Chris Kimbangi and um, I'm one of the leaders here. In fact, I get the privilege of leading our eldership team and uh, it's great to just come and and gather together with uh, so many people on a Sunday morning once again. Uh, This week was a key week for us as a church as we uh, had our vision evening on Wednesday night and um, I sent around an email summary like with the kind of main points and some a few key bits and so if um, you haven't received that then do do let us know either by filling out a connect card or come and chat to me at the end and we'll make sure we can put you onto that mailing list we also videoed the whole thing it was on Facebook live so if you have access to Facebook then you can you can kind of see it live but the the email does have all the main points in there too and uh, if you were there, or, or maybe you just picked up through the grapevine, that we're also in the middle of 10 days of prayer, and we're on day four at the moment. And uh, I just want to encourage you to, to join in on that. If you, we, we kind of, yeah, if you want to know more about that, on the info table at the end, there's like, at the back, there is a um, 10 days of prayer sheet of all the different things that we want to pray into as a church over these 10 days. And uh, as an eldership team, every morning at 7am, we've been getting up early to... Um, video ourselves at that time yes sorry about that um and uh, <laughs> uh and just we're just we're just leading our church in prayer we're just praying into those topics for the day and so whether you're you're sort of tuning in at 7am or, or later on in the day we just want to encourage you all to pray along with us so that as a whole church we're praying together into these things that god has got for us so that's that one more thing actually just to mention before we get to the preach here at centerpoint we really value membership and uh, we value each other, we value family life, it's great to know who we're building with and I'm delighted to let you know that as well as the newcomers lunch that Catherine mentioned that we've got another exploring membership evening coming up in a few weeks and uh, that'll be at mine and Catherine's house just for a few hours in the evening on a Sunday night and more information will come out about that uh, soon. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good evening where you can get to know us, know what we're about, know what, we're, what gets us out of bed in the morning, what gets us ticking as a church. And uh, we had one actually recently, just before Christmas, and I'm delighted to, to let you know that some of those people are going to be coming into membership this morning. Hey, so can we give a big Centrepoint welcome to Deborah, Emily, Ryan and Jessica. Why don't you come up, guys? So um, Ryan and Jessica are married and they've got two children, Amelia and Thomas, and um, uh, Ryan's involved in a work that I can't remember. What was it again? Software engineering. Software engineering, that's it. I need a somewhere to... Uswitch.com. Uswitch, Uswitch. Here goes a plug. There are other websites available, but Uswitch <laughs> is one. And uh, Jessica's uh, just doing an amazing job looking after the kids at home. And Deborah and Emily are doing children's nursing. And so, you know, do make sure you, you welcome them in and uh, you can chat to them, get to know them. But for now, I'd love to just pray for you. And, uh, yeah. 
Father God, I just want to thank you so much for, for these amazing people. Lord, I thank you for um, just their, their passion, their excitement. I thank you for how, Lord God, they've blessed me just by their presence and, and them coming along and bless our church. And I do pray, Lord God, that we would be a blessing to them in return. I pray, Father, that over their time of being part of our church, that they would find this place as their greatest fruit, greatest place of fruitfulness. And so I just pray, Lord God, that you'd have your hands on them. Would you continue to fill them with the Holy Spirit? Help them, Lord God, to encourage us and equip us as a church as we continue to move forward in all the things you have for us. Bless them, I pray. Amen. Good. It's good. I was talking about tens on our vision focus evening. And uh, for membership, we've now got six left. Way. <laughs> anyway, don't worry if you didn't get that. Um, but I am going to start with a joke. Okay? So here you go. A Spanish teacher was explaining to her class that in Spanish, unlike English, nouns are designated as either masculine or feminine. So house, for instance, is feminine, la casa. Um, however, pencil is masculine, el lapis. So a student asked, well, what gender is computer? And instead of giving the answer, the teacher split the class into two groups, male, and female, and said, well, why don't you decide between yourselves which one uh, computer should be, masculine or feminine? Each group was asked to give four reasons for their answer. And uh, the men's group decided that they would go first. And they said, well, computer should definitely be a fem feminine gender, la computadora. Because, one, no one but their creator understands their internal logic. Two, <laughs> the native language they use to communicate with other computers is incomprehensible to anyone else. Three, even the smallest mistakes are stored in long-term me memory for possible later retrieval. And four, as soon as you make a commitment to one, you find yourself spending half of your paycheck on accessories for it. But that's not it. You see, the female group, they went next. And they concluded that computers should be masculine, el computador. Because one, in order to do anything with them, you have to turn them on. <laughs> Two, they have a lot of data, but still can't think for themselves. Three, they are supposed to help you solve problems, but half the time, they are the problem. And four, as soon as you could commit to one, you realise that if you had waited just a little bit longer, that a better version would come along. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I found it funny anyway. And um, we all laugh, but actually, sexism is very real and it's all over the place. You see it everywhere. And uh, it's possible, actually, that as we come to the particular chapter in 1 Corinthians, which is chapter 11 that we're going to look at today, that you could think that Paul is the biggest sexist of them all. He's the guy that wrote 1 Corinthians. You could think that he was a woman hater, but nothing could be further from the truth. And we're going to get to some real fun passages that Paul writes about in this chapter in today's talk. And so you can start to turn to chapter 11 now. But... I'm actually going to start in the second half of the chapter and we'll come back to the beginning. Uh, 
In fact, last week I did three chapters in one talk. And this week I'm doing one chapter, but to be honest, I could do this over three weeks because there's so much content inside. And so I'm letting you know up front that I can't possibly preach on every passage, otherwise we'll be here till later this evening. But we will hit the main points. And uh, if you've got questions about other bits in the passage, then you know, feel free to you know, hit me up. I'm happy to meet up for a coffee anytime and have a good theological debate. I love that. So um, I've called today's talk True Communion, and uh, because mainly that's what the passage is about. It's about teaching us what is communion. And we're going through this book, 1 Corinthians, because really I felt God had laid it on my heart to preach through over this season. And throughout the series, we found that the Corinthian church is just in a right mess. It's all over the place. And if there was anything that you could get wrong as a church, well, the Corinthians knew how to do it. And so we're going to go through this book, and we are going through it, not because the Corinthians are an example to us to follow, but because Paul's advice to them is, um, is, is important. And so we need to hear, what's it, what is this church that God intended the Corinthians to be so that we could uh, emulate that and be like it? Hence our series title. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start from verse 17. You can follow along in your Bibles or it'll also appear on the screen. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. It's a good start, isn't it? In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. He then, 19, quotes sarcastically, sarcastically, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you guys eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eating and drinking? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. It's all about communion. They're getting it wrong. They're messing it up. And he goes on. For I have received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many, many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless... When we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. So that's the bulk of the passage. And um, wow, it's like... If he was speaking to our church and saying this, you'd be like, oh, 
we've, we've messed up here. And the main theme of this passage is about this celebration that Paul calls the Lord's Supper. And throughout church history, this has been a contentious issue for different streams and denominations. And it's caused actually splits and divisions. But we shouldn't be surprised about that because looking back at this passage, we see right at the early church, the, this, this issue was there. Your meetings do more harm than good in this area. Paul says. And this book of the Bible is one of the earliest parts, in fact, of the New Testament. It was written before any of the four Gospels. And um, this letter from Paul was to this first generation church, probably 20 or 30 years after Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And there's three things that he picks out. One is that the church celebrated this special meal together and they called it the Lord's Supper. Two is that it was based on something Jesus started and told them to carry on. And three, it was causing trouble because the way they were doing it wasn't great. So in this passage, Paul says that God was judging the Corinthian church because of this trouble and because of this trouble um, and because of a direct result of how they were doing it. People were falling ill and have even died because of the way they did it. And that's what verse 30 was saying. And that sounds pretty serious to me. And it gives me then enough reason to make sure that we look at it closely and we spend this morning talking about it. You know, almost every Christian denomination celebrates this in one form or another. So what Paul called the Lord's Supper has lots of different names, including Mass, Eucharist, the Bread and Wine, the Fellowship Meal, a Love Feast, the Divine Liturgy, Badarak, Holy Cabana, the Lord's Table and Holy Communion. And not only does it have lots of different names, but it can also be surrounded by lots of different questions and uh, different theology and different practices too and so some things that can come up are this like how often should it happen some people believe that it should be done in every christian meeting and others that it should only be done once a year some people believe that it should always be administered by a priest and others that the meal can be taken by any believers eating together um, some believe that the bread and wine actually become the physical body and blood of Jesus and others that they are just tokens to represent these things. Some people believe that the bread and wine can be taken by everyone and others that only the priest can take it on behalf of the worshippers. And then there's lots of different practicalities. Some believe that any leftover bread and wine must be eaten by the priest. Others, that the leftovers can be consumed or thrown away or the children can eat it at the back. Some insist that we must have one large loaf of bread and others that we should have separate loaves of bread. Some that those wafers should be hygienically concealed in containers. Some believe that we should have one cup and everyone share it and others that we should only have, uh, we should have individual glasses for each person. And then there's the point of alcohol, should it be alcohol or not? Some insist that the wine must be alcoholic, some insist that it shouldn't, and there's probably lots more different discussions about how should this meal be done. Lots of different opinions, lots of different practices. It's a hotbed for division and arguments, just like it was in Corinth. But according to this passage, God takes it seriously, and he's begun to judge the church for it because they're doing it wrong, and so I think it's good to look at. Does that make sense? No. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So uh, the way we're going to look at this topic is by doing four things. We're going to answer these questions. What was going wrong in Corinth? What is its meaning? So what's the meaning of communion or the Lord's Supper? How should we do it today? 
and what should be our attitude to it. And so we'll answer some of those questions as we go through. And uh, each section kind of progressively gets shorter and shorter. So don't panic after section one or section two. They, they do get shorter. So what was going wrong in Corinth? In Corinth, um, Christianity basically came into a pagan culture where there were major divisions between rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, and those that were Jews and those that were not Jews. They're called Gentiles. And so major cultural divides existed in these kind of groupings. And these divides were probably carried over into the church. In fact, we've seen some of that over the last few weeks and months. And so what it means is that the rich would have sat together by themselves as they came to do Holy Communion. And the, um, the poor would have sat by themselves. And they, the rich would have been the first ones into the, into the room. They would have had the, the best seats while the poor had nothing. And we find in this passage that, um, you know, the rich people are coming in, they're eating all the bread because they were hungry, and they're drinking the wine and getting drunk. And we read in Acts, depending on your background, that people were treated in lots of different ways because culture just runs so deep and it was running into the church, even though being in Christ means that you're all equal and there should be unity with each other, <laughs> it was causing problems. And so God looked on and he was not pleased because God expects his church to be in unity and not in division. So Paul, he starts off by saying, look, your meetings do more harm than good. And then in verse 20, he's saying, so then when you come together, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're doing. You're not doing it. Because when you are eating, some of you are, go ahead and you have your own private suppers. You know, those are all the rich people in their own rooms. And as a result, people remain hungry. And then other people are getting drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating it in this way? He's really going for them. Should I praise you? Certainly not. Can you see it's just outrageous what they're getting up to? And Paul says to them what they are doing, although they may call it the Lord's Supper, it's certainly not what Jesus had in mind. And so in verse 27, he goes on, So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. It's serious. It's a serious matter. And the Corinthian church is experiencing this judgment of God because they're doing it in an unworthy manner. And Paul gives them some practical advice. So he says, you know, don't come to church hungry. Like, eat at home and then come so that you, so that you can sort of get the kind of hunger pangs out of the way. And um, because the rich look down on the poor and the freed people look down on the slaves and the Jews look down on those that weren't Jews, uh, on the Greeks, it, it's not a surprise that also you would have problems between men and women. And that brings me back to our beginning joke. Because at the very beginning of this chapter, in chapter 11, there are various verses that out of context can seem very confusing. Let me highlight some. Chapter 11, verse 3, I want you to realise that the bread... Oh, sorry, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It's the same as having her head shaved, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. So man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Hold the tomatoes just yet. This isn't my words, this is Paul, not me. Actually, 
this is God. Because scripture tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, correcting. In fact, Peter referred to this as scripture. And these passages are often the places that people go when they say Paul is a woman hater. Look, read this. Can't you see that? But we have to remember that, that, like I said, this is the word of God. And you know what? Actually, I know that there is at least one church in Guildford that uh, if you go to it and you're a female, you have to cover your head. And certainly if you, if you want to bring anything like pray or prophesy. Um, yeah, I know one. I found out this week, actually. And so some people will, t- will use these verses and build a whole doctrine on them. And I think it's important to find out what is he talking about, on, talking about then. So let's talk about it. In Corinth, every woman wore a covering on her head in public. Often it was a mark of respect to her husband. Much like it happens in many countries around the world today. In fact, the women who did not wear a covering on their head, they were the temple prostitutes. And it was a sign to other men that they were available and open for business. But in the church, the women in the church were also not covering their heads. Why? Well, because they had um, put their trust in Jesus. And Jesus made equality over all people. And so, of course, for them, it was the right thing to do, that, that they should now be free from all the kind of cultural pressures of of how to dress and therefore be able to uh, kind of wear and dress how they would want and so that's how how, what they thought and um, in this passage actually the more literal translation for women in verse 3 should actually be wife and so it's not necessarily that all the women were uncovering their heads it was the wives of husbands that were uncovering their heads and so you had this context where the wives in the church were wearing their hair down and members of the public were walking into their meetings and as you can imagine it was doing them harm because it portrayed that Christianity was just like all the other pagan religions in that city and that they had their own temple prostitutes just like the other religions had their own temple (laughs) prostitutes and so it would almost it would be like if every wife in our church came on a Sunday morning dressed in a bikini or something. Now, it might raise the attendance a little, but (laughs) people would look on and they would be like, what kind of church is this? It would probably do us more harm than good, so please don't don't do it. And uh, Paul, he he then wants to address this. So he is writing this letter, as we've, we've talked over the last few weeks, that Paul is writing this letter to address the Corinthians because they're getting things wrong. And so he does. He says, look, it's not about... It's not about the external issue of wearing a head covering that he's laying down here. It's not that that he's laying down for all time. What he's doing is an internal issue of showing respect and integrity to the world we live in. He reminds them that although they are not of the world, they are in it. And we need to remember our context just as they did. And so, like I said, there's so much more to preach on on this passage about marital relationships, but we just don't have time today. But we should read the next verse because Paul is being massively countercultural. Everyone knew that women were the property of men in that culture. Women received no inheritance. They couldn't vote. They had low standing in life. They were, just, they were treated just like slaves, those who weren't Jews and the poor. But Paul reminds them that all men and women are equal before God, that they both come from him. And as Genesis puts it, they were both created in his image male and female and so therefore no gender can bear God's image and so he goes on and says in the Lord women is not independent of man nor is man independent of woman for just as woman came from man so also man is born of woman and everything comes from God 
And that is massively countercultural in that context, in that day. Paul is elevating the status of, of uh, men and women and slave and free and Jew and Gentile, which is why in the Galatians he says, in Christ there is no more slave or free. There's no more Jew and Gentile. There's no more male or female. All are one in Christ. And so throughout chapter 11... He elevates the, actually the status of all of them. and says, no, no, as we come together, we should all eat at one. And he finishes, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Because in Christ, there is no division. All are equal before God. Amen? Amen. Okay, so like I said, I can't cover all the passages. and There's lots more we could talk about, but we just don't have time. So let's go on to question two. What is its meaning? So to understand the background to this, we have to look at the Jewish celebration called Passover. And I guess that most of us, you might have heard of the word Passover, but you might not know what it's all about. So I'm just going to briefly recap. The Old Testament, it tells the story of a nation of Israel and how God chose one nation on earth and made a promise to bless all the nations through them, which was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And the first book of the Bible, Genesis, it ends with the Israelites settling happily. Maybe they look like this. They settled happily in the land of Egypt. And the second book of the Bible, Exodus, it actually opens 400 years later. And that group of people that were 70 have now become around 2 million. And they are, rather than being favoured in Egypt, they have now become slaves to the pharaohs. And they're being used in, as hard labour. And the people cry out to God to, to rescue them. And God sends them a deliverer or a saviour. And that man's name is Moses. Moses is sent by God to see Pharaoh and to ask him to release the people... And of course, Pharaoh refuses. So God responds by sending a plague to the land of Egypt and Pharaoh relents. So then Moses prays, the plague ceases, but then Pharaoh changes his mind again. And this um, repeats itself about 10 times. The plagues get worse and worse from rivers of blood to frogs and gnats and to finally the 10th plague, which is the plague of death. After which Pharaoh, he relents, he lets the people go before changing his mind once again and chasing the Israelites to uh, the Red Sea. And we all know the rest of the story. But before the final plague, the plague, uh, which is the plague of death, the Israelites, what they, were, they were given instructions by God on how to protect themselves. And um, the instructions are at the root of the Passover and they're ultimately at the root of the Lord's Supper too. So the instructions were these. That they were told to take a lamb and to slaughter it. They were then to eat the lamb, but before they did, to take some of its blood and paint it on the top and the sides of their door frames in their houses. And if they did that, then they would be safe from the plague. And uh, when the destroying angel came, he would see the blood on the doorposts and he would pass over their houses. Hence the phrase, Passover. God then, he instructed the Israelites to commemorate this event every year with a festival lasting a week. And the festival was called, does anyone know? Yeah, yeah. It, it was, it's kind of been known to be Passover, but in the, old, in the Old Testament it's called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And uh, this festival included the Passover meal. And the meal included some special elements to it. So unleavened bread to remind them that they had to leave Egypt in the hurry and they didn't have time for their bread to rise. B, 
bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery and salt water to remind them of their tears. And it also included drinking wine and eating lamb. And over many years, the meal developed and um, it developed lots of different traditions. And, but for Christians today, Jesus, he spoke new meaning into Passover. So many Jews will still take Passover, still celebrate this every year. But Jesus spoke new meaning into it. And in the Gospels, we read that Jesus was very keen to eat a last meal with his disciples before his crucifixion. And the meal he wanted to eat, it was Passover. But it's often referred to as the Last Supper. Absolutely. And that night at the meal, Jesus took two elements of that Passover meal and he gave new meaning to them. And uh, he gave them really the meaning they were always meant to have. And so the first element was bread. And so uh, in our passage, it says the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Oh, sorry. Um, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus, he, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he, he broke it and then he gave it to them to eat. And he said, look, this is, this is like my body. And uh, his body uh, was about to be broken for us all. And so that's why he uses to represent that. And then he took the second element, which was the wine. And he said, in the same way, after supper, he took a cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And the cup of wine was shared among them all. It was a new covenant of his blood and that he was about to pour out for us all. And then he gave this instruction, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus, he, he took this Passover celebration, he gave it new meaning, and it, he used it to speak of his own death and his own resurrection. And there's so much significance here, it's important for us to, to grasp it. So firstly, remember the, that the Israelites, they had to take a lamb, they had to kill it at Passover. Well, the blood that was put on the, that blood was put on the sides and the door of the frame. And if the blood was on that door frame, if it was there, then judgment would pass over them. And it did not matter how good or how bad the people in that house were. It didn't matter how many times they prayed or uh, how nice they were to people or what good things they had done or not done. It didn't matter what background they were from. It didn't matter how religious they were. It didn't matter if they doubted if this thing would work. It didn't matter if they had questions about, uh, about what they were doing all they needed was enough faith to take the step to put the, door, the, the blood on the frame and they were saved. What mattered was that they believed that the word of God and that they pledged their lives to the blood of an innocent lamb slain in their place. If the blood was seen, they escaped judgment and they were proclaimed innocent. And that is a picture for our lives too. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus is our Passover lamb, that he was slain for us. Because we've all done things wrong, all, all of us. And all of us deserve judgment from God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death and we have all sinned. But the truth is that forgiveness from God is not found in doing good things. It's not found in being nice to people. It's not found in doing a nice prayer or, or doing this or doing that. Forgiveness is found in the blood of an innocent lamb that is slain in our place. And that innocent lamb was Jesus. The blood on the door frames was put on the top and on the sides. It's the points of a cross. And it all reveals to us about what Jesus was going to do. When Jesus died, he brought complete forgiveness for anyone who believes in him. 
His blood counts for us. His blood is applied to our lives and the judgment of sin and the punishment of death will pass over us. And you can say, well, I can't see the blood. It doesn't matter because it's about what God sees. God needs to see it. And you can say, but there isn't, uh, there's so much, you you might think there's so much wrong in my life. But again, it doesn't matter because that's not the point. The point is, have you put your trust in Jesus or not? And you might say, but I don't feel like I'm forgiven. And that's still not the point. It doesn't matter. If you've put your trust in Jesus, then the Bible says that his, his sacrifice, his death is applied to you so that you, your sins are forgiven and you are proclaimed innocent. Jesus sees you and he sees you as holy and clean and forgiven. Judgment will pass over you because of Jesus' blood. And it's why the New Testament talks about this all the way through it. So 1 Peter 3 verse 18, For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Can you see it? Jesus left us this meal as a celebration to remember him by. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. Proclaim my death until I come. And if you're a believer, then the communion meal is for you. And as a church, we need to give ourselves to doing this together. We do it to proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. We do it out of obedience. We do it as a way of meeting with God. And we believe that it's a means of God's grace to us and and mercy to us. And we believe that there's genuine power, actually, as we come together in in unity and, and take communion to remember all that Jesus has done. Corinth was judged for getting it so wrong. But there is great blessing and mercy and grace when we come together and do it right. So that leads us on to question three. How should we do it today? And um, I kind of, I find it ironic really that the meal that Jesus left for us to celebrate his death and resurrection has historically caused so much division across churches because surely it really should enhance our unity. So those questions I raised at the beginning, I think it's just worth answering those quickly. Um, So one of them was like, how often? How often should we take it? And, uh, you know, when you go to, like, a Mediterranean country and you go to a restaurant and have a meal, the first thing they put on your table is bread. And the second thing they put on your table is wine. And I, th- I just believe that Jesus probably had that kind of thing in mind as he was talking to his, his disciples and talking to the church. As you sit down, what is there to stop you from taking that bread and wine and giving thanks with, with your family and saying to Jesus, yeah, we remember your body and your blood spilt for us? Nothing. So you can, you can celebrate this meal as a couple or as a family. You can celebrate it as a life group. You can celebrate the meal as a church. And uh, the way you do that might de- change in the context. So on a Sunday morning like this, um, the, the kind of practical details might change. But after all, he says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the year of the Lord's uh, death until he comes. You know, it's whenever. You, you can do it any time. Anywhere, how often, however often you like to do it, you can do it. So by whom? Is it just the priest or can anyone do it? Well, again, this is ironic because the only way that a man can ever relate to God is through a priest who mediates for us with God. 
In the Old Testament, there was a priesthood, a temple, a sacrificial system, and you had to come to God through the priest with a sacrifice in order to relate to God. But Jesus has taken that all away, and he fulfilled it. He became our great high priest, and we don't need another one. He stands in the gap between us and God. So Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is the temple we come to. Jesus is the person at the centre of our worship. And so Jesus has opened the way to the Father, And we can come with boldness and confidence to God to say, uh, yeah, we can come with boldness and confidence to him. Uh, We don't need a priest to deliver communion on our behalf. We don't need that. In fact, it robs us of the very meaning of communion, which at its heart says that the way to God is now open through our great high priest, Jesus, who has gone through the heavens and is interceding with us at the Father's right hand. That means he's praying for us. That is good news, and that's the gospel. So is it symbolic or is it real? Does the bread and wine actually become Jesus' body? That idea is called transubstantiation. And I've got to be honest, I'm convinced that this idea is nonsense. I don't believe the scripture teaches it. Jesus said that we were to do it in remembrance of him. And um, he was slain once, and for all we read that from from Peter. His death did away with sacrifice. It's finished. He does not need to die again for us. We're not called to some kind of like bizarre cannibalism. We don't need to do that. The bread is bread, the wine is wine or fruit juice or whatever and they are symbols that we take. But that doesn't mean there's no power in it. There is. It's significant and we shouldn't take it lightly and to miss out on it altogether would, have, would be a wrong attitude for us to take. But no, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't go with that. What about for whom? Can anyone do it or does the priest have to do it on behalf of the worshippers? Hopefully this is obvious, but it's worth mentioning. It's for everyone. It's for everyone who has put their trust in Jesus. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, well, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today and you can take the communion. And if you, even if you did and you hadn't, it's not going to harm you. It's not like something's bad's going to happen. It, it doesn't really matter. But the significance of it for the Christian is important because it as we come together we remember Jesus' death and we rejoice in all that he's done in saving us and so it's important for us to to do it and to do it with a good attitude and celebration and so if you haven't put your trust in Jesus then you've got two options option number one is to just not not do it and that's absolutely fine and there'll be people here today that don't and that's absolutely fine we're really relaxed option number two is to put your trust in Jesus is to take that step of faith. You might not have all the answers, all the questions, but neither did the Israelites. All they needed was enough faith to put the blood on their doorposts. That was it. What about the practicalities? Should, uh, what should happen with the bread? Should it be leavened or unleavened? Should it be one loaf or many loaves, multiple glasses or one glass? And to be honest, I don't think God cares. He just doesn't care. And he's more concerned about the heart attitude than the practicalities, which is why this whole passage, it encourages us to take this in unity, to assess our hearts, to make sure that our relationship with God is right and with each other is right. And so in different contexts, you can do it however you like, with whatever bread you like, it doesn't matter. In our context, I've got to be honest, I wouldn't be particularly pleased to be the last in the queue of 100 people having sipped through a cup and uh, it's pretty gross, isn't it? Um, so we don't do it. We give everyone an individual cup and it's just a bit more hygienic and um, 
it blesses everyone, doesn't it? Let's be honest. So that's how we do it in this context. But obviously, if you're with your family or your wife, then you could do it however you like. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Lastly, should it be alcoholic or not? Again, I don't think God minds. For us as a church, we want to be inclusive to everyone, just as Paul recommends. And so if we were to use alcoholic wine, then we would be putting people in a vulnerable position and some wouldn't be able to take it because like, they just might struggle in that area for whatever reason. And so we don't put the people in that position. So for us, we just use red grape juice on a Sunday morning. That's it. Does that make sense? And you can do the same at home. You can use wine. You can use whatever you like. Um, yeah. Within reason. Chocolate and milk might be stretching a bit far. <laughs> Biscuits and tea might be stretching a bit far. But bread and some kind of drink, great. So last question. What should our attitude be? Well, in verse 28, it says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I think there's two main things. We need to recognise our relationship with God through Jesus. That's the first one. And so this, this verse, it tells us to do that, to examine ourselves before God. And so what should examining ourselves look like? Well, I've got some suggested questions that you could ask yourself and they're not legalistic ones they're just you know you can you might come up with other questions but some things to help examine yourself might be this is there some kind of big unconfessed or unrepentant sin in my life that I'm aware of that I'm conscious of and if there is confess it say sorry to God deal with it hand it over to him apologize don't you don't need to go digging it'll be there on the surface if there is Another question might be, is there anyone else that I need to forgive or to apologise to? Is there someone else I need to reconcile with? And if that's the case, we'll make a plan to do that. It might be today, it might be later on in the week, but make sure that you go and do that. There might be people that you just need to forgive in your heart that years ago, they just annoyed you. And the fact is that sooner or later in church life, you don't have to be here long, someone will annoy you and you're going to need to practise forgiveness and unity together. And another question might be, am I trusting Jesus for my salvation or am I trusting all the goodness and my good works and all the things that I do and the way that I serve and all that? What are you trusting? The only thing the Israelites had to trust in was, was that blood on the doorpost or not? If it was, the judgment passed over them. And that's the same for us today. A recognition of our relationship with God will include a realisation that we have fallen short of God's standards, that Jesus has died for us and that we need him for forgiveness and him alone. Then we take the bread and the wine and we say, Lord, this is your body broken for me. This is your blood um, that makes me clean. I'm under a new covenant. I'm forgiven. Thank you, Lord. And when we do this rightly, our relationship with God through Jesus is restored in it, and it's good. And then the second thing is we need to recognise our relationship with one another through Jesus. Um, it says in verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. You see, the body that Paul is referring to is not a physical body of Jesus or it's not the bread of communion, but it's the body of Christ on earth. That's his church. So as we do this, we need to recognise the church. We need to recognise one another and in the unity that we have through Christ. And if we do this with an attitude of independent arrogance or looking down on others or considering the rest of the church beneath us and not worrying about um, them like the rich people in Corinth were doing, then we drink judgment on ourselves. So we need a good attitude that recognises that we are one together regardless of any superficial cultural differences like race or social standing. 
the Corinthians, they had allowed this deep division to come into their church and that shouldn't have been there. The divisions were between those who had status and those who didn't and it resulted in judgment. And so I wonder, what about us? How are we doing? What divisions do we have today in our church? Because we're called to build a united body of believers, a body without factions and divisions, a body without arguments and disagreements, uh, a true mix of black and white and rich and poor and able-bodied and disabled-bodied and young and old and all nationalities. So how are we doing with that? How are we doing? There should be a mix of people that are in relationships and people that aren't in relationships. There should be a mix of different skin colours and skin tones. And uh, we shouldn't shy away of meeting with groups of people that are in a, a different sort of social demographic. You know, I wonder, have you been shying away from people that are older than you because you, I don't know how to relate to them? Or people that have a different skin colour to you or people that have a different ability to you? Church as God intended will be the people with one heart and one mind together. The people of every different nationality and culture, every tribe, tongue and nation. God has made us one in Jesus Christ. We are united together with Jesus and he is our cornerstone. That's who's building this church. It's Jesus. He's leading the way and we trust him. And uh, we want to be this dynamic and culturally diverse community that he has called us to because, uh, and we need to accept everyone into our community just as Christ Jesus has accepted us to relationship with him. Amen? Okay, let's get the band up. What we're going to do is we're going to, um, we're going to take communion actually in a moment. And um, there's lots of different names that I mentioned at the beginning. But to be honest, I prefer the name communion. And uh, the reason that I believe that this is one of the best words used is because it just speaks of our communion or our fellowship with God. And it speaks of our communion or our fellowship with one another. And so that's kind of what we call it. But you can call it whatever you like. But before we do that, I'd love us to stand. And we're just going to spend a bit of time before God. So why don't you, why don't you let's stand together. Just uh, come into his presence. Just where you are, why don't you, in whatever way you feel comfortable, just, um, just invite God into your heart again. You might want to shut your eyes for the moment. I'm just going to stand over here so I don't mess up the sound system. Um, what I want us to do is three things. I just want us to take a moment to examine ourselves, to re- recommit ourselves to Jesus, and to recommit ourselves to unity with each other. I'm going to do them in that, in that order. So let's just, yeah, like I said, just close your eyes and just, I'm going to give you some time to do business with God. Is there unconfessed sin in your life? You don't, you don't need to dig too deep. What are those favourite sins you like to commit? Where, where do you need to pull it? Why don't you just do that right now? Just say, sorry, Lord. Sorry for this or that. Is there someone you need to be reconciled to or someone that you need to forgive? You can do that in your heart now too. Lord, help me to forgive that person. I'm sorry when I mess up. I'm sorry when I did this. Help me to forgive them. Help me, Lord God, to be in unity with them. Are you trusting Jesus for your salvation or yourself? repent of that too Lord I'm sorry when I take pride in 
in my own good works, in my own serving. Help me to remember this only by the blood of Jesus that I'm saved. It's good for us to recommit our lives to him too. You know, for those Israelites, putting the blood on the doorframe would have been the first significant moment of them putting their trust in Jesus. They would have been in slavery for many, many years. They may have forgotten all about him and what he did in their history. And for them, for some of them, it would have been the first time, that first step, many questions unanswered, many wonderings. You know, today, you can make that first step too. For the others, it would have been a significant recommitment, having struggled with the hardships of life. And that might be you today too. You might have just had a really hard season. You know, I want to give you a moment now to recommit your life to Jesus, to say, Lord, this is, I'm yours and I love you. And so um, whilst, you know, we all bow our heads and I want to pray and I want to encourage you to pray with me. And if that's you, if for you today is a significant moment of recommitting your life to Jesus, just saying again, yes, Lord, I'm with you. Or maybe it's for the first time you want to say, Lord, I don't know all the answers, but I, I'm putting my trust in you, that you would pass your judgment over me. Then I want to pray for you. And I'm not going to embarrass you, but why don't you just raise your hand now so I know who I'm praying for. Thank you. Anyone else? Just raise your hand so I can see. Thank you. Anyone else? I don't want to miss it. Okay. Thanks. You can put your hand down. Lord God, just pray with me. Father, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for when I do wrong. But I believe that the blood of Jesus is enough to pass over all my sins, to deal with them. And so, Father, I commit my life to you now or again now. And I say, Lord, have your way in my life. I don't have all the answers, but I trust you, Jesus, that I can be found innocent in God's eyes because of your sacrifice for me. Amen. For you today, for those that responded, you might, you can take communion. You can rejoice in this celebration meal. And then the last thing that I just want you to ponder is um, recommitting yourselves to unity with our church. Is there any division? Is there anyone that you've just got an issue with? Who do you need to take a decision to walk in unity with? Have there been areas in your life where you just you struggle coming to church because of that person or this person or, or just because of the, the way things are done. What practical steps can you take? Let me just pray. Father God, I just want to thank you for our time together today. I thank you for this communion meal that you've given us to celebrate together. And Lord, today, as we remember your body broken for us, we we thank you, Lord, that, that you died on the cross in our place for our sin, making a way that we've come into relation with Jesus, with God, our Father. And Lord, when we think of your blood spilt, we thank you, Lord, that uh, it's not our own and that that has brought a righteousness to us that makes us innocent before God and in his sight. I just pray this morning as we come and take communion, Lord God, would you be glorified? Would you be blessed in this place? We love you, Jesus. 
We give you all the praise and glory and adoration. We ask you to have your way in our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please do come and visit us Sundays, 10am at the Odeon Cinema in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.